and you've got to really own that that niche, right? So, and and that's where this becomes interesting because niche on its own is small, but many niches leading the way under a portfolio is 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 quite massive, right? Billions of dollars out there. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. If you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast, Apple, Spotify, anywhere else, it goes a long way. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are live with Gassan Halazon. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me, John. It's been, uh, it's been uh, a long time coming. Yes, sir. And, uh, and you've been super busy. I want to talk Emerge. I want to talk... Uh, you were in group buying before that. You've kind of done it all over the last... How long, I mean, how long have you been an entrepreneur for? It's got to be 10, 15 years. It's been about 12 years. Okay. Uh, I know this for a fact because I, I use it in most of my uh, stories and, and the fact that we've been... Through pretty much everything at this point, you know, buying, selling, restructuring e-commerce companies for a living for twelve years. So I know that for a fact. Yeah, and I'm looking at at Emerge Commerce. Of course, you're the the CEO, uh, founder of Emerge, and we'll talk about all your companies and the model. A lot to get into here, but just give us a quick minute on kind of your background. How did you get into it? Were you a side hustler as a kid? Were you were you always doing what, what you're doing? Yeah, great great question. Um, Look, like my my original uh, background was actually in banking, right? In uh, in investment banking in New York. I did my undergrad at McGill. I did my MBA at, uh, at Georgetown in Washington D.C. And then I was in uh, in in banking on Wall Street, living the dream, if uh, if you can call it that. Really <laughs> far from it, to be honest with you. A tough years on the street, two thousand and eight to two thousand and ten, when the when the recession hit, and and uh, and you know, I I personally hated my. Uh, banking experience, but it taught me a lot about uh, M&A, mergers and acquisitions, which is what we do at Emerge for e-commerce companies, uh, capital markets, you know, capital allocation, and, and all of those influences came uh, from an early stage and, and um, you know, sort of made my uh, uh, first foray into entrepreneurship um, uh, in 2010. I was about 25 uh, uh, years old and, and partnered with a couple of uh, uh, young guns in in Toronto and uh, and moved here. Uh, we all quit our jobs and we uh, we started off. And fast forward twelve years in, it's pretty much all I've been doing. I've been CEO uh, of various companies. I've been, uh, as I said, uh, invested, acquiring, mentoring, partnering. You name it, you know, we've probably done it. Um, so that's what. What was that first company that you uh, you you and your friends uh, came up with? Yeah. So when I was in New York, um, we came across this sort of. What they call the social buying or social commerce explosion, with at the time the Web 2.0 companies like Groupon and Guilt Group, if you recall, uh, and so we thought that uh, running straight to Canada, where a lot of the big U.S. giants um, would uh, would kind of skip and go towards China and India and Russia in those days, the BRIC countries were kind of where the big Silicon Valley companies would run towards for scale and size. Uh, and Canada would often over, be overlooked. So we kind of wanted to go to Canada or, you know, sort of launch the Groupon of Canada at the time. It was a company called Team Buy. Um, and, uh, and we were the first. And ultimately, for a period of four or five years, we were the largest. We scaled that business to uh, about 120 employees. Uh, we built a sort of a $50, $60 million market leader at the time in Canada. Um, so it was a pretty surreal time, especially for my first venture in my uh, mid to late 20s. Um, and then, you know, as that space fizzled, we were we were faced with some tough decisions, and we went through quite a bit of a, a restructuring. But it was a, but it was an amazing learning experience, and uh, really sort of the foundation for for where we are today at Emerge. Quite frankly, that whole model, that whole group buying model, got really big, really fast. I think there was some crazy stat like Groupon was the first company to a billion ever in revenue. I think it was Groupon. It might have been Uber. Fastest, also, like, fastest company fastest. ever. Right, right. Uh, sorry, not first. I fastest, of course, and. And uh, I remember, did you ever come across a company back in the day called TeamSave? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, one, one of our early competitors back in the day. Okay, so the reason I mentioned it, because uh, I knew Team Buy and I knew Team Save, and the, the founders of Team Save were great, great friends of mine. And, uh, and they've still, they've all gone on, you know, everyone's doing amazing things. You, you kind of come from that young, uh, that young age of, of hustling and doing incredibly well. I mean, a 120-person company at, a, at, the 20, at the age of 25, I can't even imagine it. But what was that like going, getting so big? And then, frankly, I, I'd imagine... Kind of just like the ship is just sinking. Is, is that what it felt like? Yeah, you know, like it, it was one of those things where the the game at the time was run as fast as you can, um, and and it doesn't really matter um, if uh, you know where you're going, right? And so what that meant was when we were raising the 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 venture capital, and uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to raise funds um, internationally and ultimately through some U.S. and Canadian partners. The mandate was you better spend this money and you better launch markets. Like by default, that was what you had to do. No one uh, was talking about EBITDA or profit. And as you know, that's sort of a very big theme that emerged. So those influences, this idea of growth at all costs, which I've been talking about for years, by the way, and these, what we call internally empty calorie growth, right? Like that, that you would find ways, you would launch markets, you would be aggressive with promo codes. Listen, if you're an Uber or if an Amazon where you're giving discounts forever, you know, on Uber Eats and all of that, that's one thing where you have, you know, billions of dollars on the balance sheet. But many startups that partner with venture capital, by virtue of just being a part of that ecosystem, you're kind of bucketed in this go to a billion or these days a hundred billion or go nowhere. And so if the tide turns, whether that's a macro climate issue, whether it's an industry issue, in this case, Groupon, the big elephant in the room, went public and it was a failed IPO pretty soon after. So imagine what number two, three, four, five, and number 10 are in VC's eyes. So suddenly the ship sailed on this world of, you know, sort of group buying and daily deals in the traditional sense. And, you know, anyone that got caught in the middle had to, had to recalibrate. Um, and, and that's what we did. Unbelievable, and and that that thesis or that that mantra that you hammer so much, which is, and I I'm the same. I, I have the same belief, which is, if you're a VC, uh, your business model is make ten investments and hopefully one or two hits, and the other eight you really don't care about them. In fact, you would actually yeah. rather them go to zero so you can write them off, take the loss, move on. Yeah. And and so this idea that VCs and, and entrepreneurs are on the same page. I don't know. I mean, what's what's your take on that? How do you feel about VCs as an industry? You know what? Um, if you're like any other industry, if you're really exceptional at it, um, there are some extraordinary returns, maybe more so in VC land than anywhere else. Um, the VC game and model, it definitely works, but it works for a few, right? Um, and and it, it truly is about the intersection of an incredible founding or management team. Timing is super key. I think there was a great uh, TED talk a little while ago that gave you all these different choices as, as to what research said was the most important. Timing was literally the most important, i.e. Groupon itself as a 20 years ago, or let's say in 99 happened, but didn't work at all because you didn't have the mobile commerce, you didn't have the social commerce and the social graph to share and all of that. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's execution, of course, right? And, and you know, there's a whole host of other things that come into it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's, it's a multifaceted approach. And the VC model really favors, like, all the cards lining up for you, pretty much, right? You need a shit ton of luck. Sorry, pardon my language. It's okay. You, you, yeah, <laughs> you, need, you need the management team. You need the idea. You need all sorts of things to go right for you to go. To billions. That's why luck is often credited for quite a bit of the unexplained portion of it. Um, and so, listen, if you're one of the lucky ones, great. But for the 95 or the 98% out there that don't get to, to celebrate those wins, it's tough, man, because you know your cap table is stacked against you. You have a board that you have to report to for metrics you don't necessarily want to follow, but I've kind of committed. It's almost a deal with the devil in some ways. Uh, yeah. But you got to respect the great VCs because they are, without a doubt, better than most of what they do. And they found ways to continuously find those excess returns. So kudos to them. It's just not the model we live by. 
I'm with you 100%. And the one other thing you made me think of, I think I've, I'm sure this was a post that you you did maybe, I don't know, a year ago, or maybe you've done lots of posts like this. But the idea that you should use your first business as a cushion to pay for yourself for the rest of your life. So it's like, take that first yeah. company, have enough money to, to, to walk away with because you don't want to be relying on your second, third, fourth startup to pay your bills. Was that you? Yeah, you know, I, I shared this story, and I'm sure others might have, um, you know, come to the same conclusion, let's say. But in, uh, <laughs> in my history, uh, in my 20s, uh, with, with my original business, uh, there was a time when Rogers um, and all other media companies, frankly, but Rogers specifically stood out. And for you international listeners, you know, Rogers is the largest sort of telecom slash media company here in Canada. They're, they're the um, AT&T of Canada. That's right. Um, and you know they came along and they smelt the movement that was group buying and deals in the early days. And they said, "Look, uh, Gasan, look, you, you you just started this business. You're 25 years old, um, and you and the team have done a great job at being a market leader early on. Um, but you know we're this. We've decided we're entering this game, and you might as well join us. We'll buy you out, or you're gonna have to compete with us and other giants. You know it's gonna be a very intense game." And so they put an offer on the table and it was probably for at the time, like sort of a couple of million dollars up front, another like 8 million or so in earn out over three, four years. And everyone that we spoke, spoke to about their experiences, not specifically with Rogers, but just with earnouts with big companies, the consensus was that those earnouts would be really difficult to meet. It's very bureaucratic. Things are slow moving. You're not going to get the support you need. You're too small. And so we decided to go independent and we turned down that offer. And, 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 and you know, the tidbit I think you're referring to is me saying, look, uh, things happen for a reason. Uh, and we learned our mistakes the hard way and the expensive way. And we, we ended up outgrowing the offer and we got valuations multiple times the offer over the few years later. But as you know, the space got competitive and we didn't end up with an optimal exit back then. But I always say, had we taken it or had I taken it at that age, you know, buckled up and, and, you know, at the time we had no venture backing at all. So it was just me, family and friends and my, my close partners at the time. It would have been life-changing. It would have been a great starting point. Now, you know, with that money, would I have started Emerge? Would I have had that hunger to go and do bigger things? Or would I have said, let's buy a bit of real estate. Let's hang out. Let's go back to Jordan, which is my hometown, you know, chill out a bit and, and, and be, a, be a local star. And, you know, we, we chose we chose the hard way. Somehow, we always choose the hard way, and we choose the long game. And and uh, you know that's something that also is charming. And and you know, I believe it's ultimately going to be the bigger winner. But it's it's but but it's important, I think, in retrospect. If I had you know a younger brother or a close friend that was you know in the twenties thinking about it and got a good healthy offer back then, five ten million bucks was like fifty to hundred million bucks now. To be honest, I know it's only twelve years ago. It's real. That's money. what it felt like. Um, so I would I would be like you know take that money. You know, arm yourself, take a bit of a break. You've been, you've been working hard for three, four, five years. Come back and do it on your, on your own terms. I, I, that would be my advice today. Yeah. At 26, at 27 years old, a check for five, 10 million bucks, that really is game changing. Because then, then it's all about freedom. Then it's like, you want to do the next two, three, four, five companies? Go for it. You, you got bet. the money in the bank. It's funny. I was talking with uh, a, a television executive. This guy runs a very, very large network of, um, of, of, television companies, uh, television stations. And he said something that you kind of said also, which is like, I, I have to work with banks. I have to work with uh, government regulators, compliance, all this kind of stuff. I could just own a store and live a nice life. But here I am doing all this work. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we entrepreneurs want, want to take that path because uh, that, that's, that's what's charming to us. That's, that's fun, right? You, you bet. You know, I always, I always challenge myself. I'm sure others, and I'm sure you do this uh, a fair amount and say, look, if you did get the outcome, that you had in mind, you know, as an exit uh, from your startup, you sold your business, you made a certain amount of money that you think is, is it and, and enough and, and your target, so to speak, probably everybody has one in the game. Um, what would you do? And I asked myself that and, and I came to the conclusion that, well, firstly, I would, of course, take a, a beautiful vacation. I would I'd go out with my lovely wife. I'd probably invite my family to something. I would invite my close friends to something. I would relax. I would enjoy it. By the end of three, four, six months, 
you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm going to be on a beach somewhere pacing around with my, <laughs> my, my AirPods and, uh, you know, sort of thinking through what's coming next. Like, I don't think it would last that long, right? Dude, and, six, and I don't think you can keep me away awful. from it. I, I couldn't go six months. I, I, I'd go maybe like two months. I'm, I'm being <laughs> extreme. I'm being extreme now. Right, right. You know, six be months nice is like, by the end of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And, so let, let, let's talk Emerge. There's so much to cover here. So the, the model uh, I'll do of a short version, you, you can do the longer version, but you're acquiring um, profitable e-commerce companies. I'm sure there are certain revenue numbers you look at, uh, growth, profitability, but you've got some great names on here. And some of the acquisition numbers, it's a public company. So a lot of this is public. Uh, some of the acquisition numbers are, are quite big. So I, I want to get into kind of how you're financing them, how you're thinking about it. But why don't you give us first just a, an overview of Emerge? Yeah, totally, John. So Emerge, for those of you who don't know, is um, an acquirer and operator of category-defining niche e-commerce brands, right? So we're a digital portfolio. Uh, we think of ourselves as a next-gen e-commerce company that buys and builds terrific, durable e-commerce businesses, right? Ranging from golf, to grocery businesses, to pet products, uh, to outdoor gear like camping and hiking, to experiences in travel, right? So we're, we're, we're a vast network uh, of brands. And with those brands comes a certain criteria that we seek when we're looking to acquire these businesses, right? So we, we want to see those businesses have either a market leadership position in their respective niche or a really good chance at it, right? We, we're not looking for someone that's somewhere stuck in a very competitive uh, middle uh, situation. We're looking for those groups that are really standing out. And for you, let's face it, to be number one or to be close to number one on a path to doing it, you have to know customer experience really well. You have to have good retention. You have to treat your employees and your community disproportionately well. So for us, the default setting is we're buying these market leaders, we're consolidating them under a universal engine and playbook where they share things like technology and uh, resources, data, management teams, capital raising, all of these things that they're not specialists in, we are, right? That's what Emerge brings to the table to this growing portfolio uh, of niche market leaders. You know, we think of them as, you know, Shopify says uh, Amazon is, you know, kind of the empire. Shopify is arming the rebels, right? To fight the good fight and you know, have the equipment they need uh, as a small to medium e-commerce business. And so Emerge uh, emerges an acquirer of rockstar rebels. We'll look at this ocean of opportunities and we'll go buy those really good ones and we'll help them share and become better together. So let's, let's look at one of these. Uh, there's a bunch. I don't know if there's one you want to talk about. There's True Local, Underpar, Wholesale Pet. Is there one that we can dig into and just kind of like uh, d dissect the deal? Yeah, you know, it happens to be our most recent one. Uh, wholesale pet is um, pretty much uh, an interesting uh, deal for a few reasons, actually. Uh, number one, it's our first B2B marketplace. So that's business to business. Um, typically, what we had historically acquired has been consumer marketplaces where we sit in the middle between merchants and customers that are buying you know, golf vouchers or uh, experiences, travel, stuff like that. The second model is subscription businesses, so direct-to-consumer or D2C businesses like True Local and Battlebox. And so, so far, all of that's been in consumer, but more recently, we bought a B2B uh, marketplace with Wholesale Pet. And so the way that business works is it sits, um, Wholesale Pet, it's a business been around, first of all, for 20 years, so definitely durable. Um, it has a CAGR or a compounded annual growth rate of uh, 22%. Over those 20 years. So, so pretty remarkable, tight-knit team out of Virginia and the US, um, operates across US. Um, and they connect about 8,000 retailers, independent stores. So retail stores looking to fill up their shelves with pet, you know, apparel, products, toys, treats, food, someday cannabis, someday soon, it sounds like, right? And they go on wholesalepet.com and they meet up with about 400 vendors, like Etsy-style pet vendors, that sell about a million SKUs on the platform. And so that's a business that drives over $50 million a year, Canadian dollars, and is a highly profitable business, really lucrative EBITDA margins. Customer retention on this thing is phenomenal, about 10 years 
tenure per some of these top customers or merchants. So, so really sort of a, a remarkable tightly run niche in pets, which is a very fast growing industry, by the way. So if I understand what you're saying, is it a marketplace where they're connecting the buyers and sellers or are you taking on inventory risk as well? Yeah, the former. We are not taking on any inventory risk in this case. Um, and, and that's kind of why it's so profitable as well. It's, it's really tight. And by the way, not only is it so profitable, but that a lot of times you hear companies talk about EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA. So do we, by the way. But in the end, what matters is how much of that flows to cash flow. So cash is ultimately uh, king. And, and, and that's the case with wholesale pet. It's a very good conversion to cash flow. Uh, so to a couple of questions, how did you find this company? Do they, are you working with the brokers? Are they coming to you? How, how are you uh, discovering these businesses? Yeah. So I think, I think these days it's a mix. You know, um, I think in the early days, it was safe to say it was mostly us with our relationships and outreach. Again, being in the space for quite a while helps. You know, you kind of have met a lot of people along the way. As time has gone by, we've added, you know, banking, brokers, um, and then, frankly, our portfolio companies, word of mouth, relationships, referrals, it's a pretty holistic approach. M&A, needless to say, is a core function at Emerge. We have a core team. We have great leadership. We have great support from our partners. Um, so it's a, it's a hugely important and, uh, and meticulous area for us. And in terms of, of acquiring these companies, so I'd imagine you've got to be buying businesses that are not going to go the venture capital route because I'm guessing the multiples and just the, the negotiations in general. You're talking to companies where you got to come to a price where it's some multiple of cash flow. So it makes sense. Uh, do you ever get into problems with, you know, someone says a business is worth, uh, you know, 200 million? You say, well, buddy, it's worth, you know, tw- 20 million at best. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's never a problem anymore because we're so clear about what we look to buy. And I always say we're very down to earth, right? We are planet earth people. That's how we value companies. So for, the, for all those fly, uh, you know, high flyers out there, enjoy the ride up there. And, uh, and you know, we'll see you when you're back down here, if you ever get back, right? If you're lucky enough to stay up there, all, all, all the more to you, all the more strength to you. Uh, but we're planet earth folks and you know if we want to be real and fair you know we're not saying we want to undercut anyone but if we want to talk ebitda and you know profit today not the maybe profit tomorrow scenario uh, we're going to be reasonable there are multiples for this sort of thing we don't make them up you know there's a formula that works for small to medium e-commerce companies typically what we're seeing is that four to six times ebitda range is kind of our overall formula and that depends on things like size growth the actual EBITDA amount, the sector they're in, you know, the ability for us to tuck in or add synergy. There are a lot of reasons why it'll trend closer to six versus four and vice versa. Um, but that's kind of how we value things. So we'll really stay away. Like my M&A team will not advance anything that's really cool and sexy that's clearly out of whack with how we think of valuation. Of course, it's a, it's a waste of everyone's time. And then what, what percentage of what you're doing is transactional marketplaces versus subscription? I think you said, um, and it might have been, been on earnings call or something, but you said you're moving more towards this, the subscription space. Is that right? Generally, it's, it's been right probably when you saw this. It's a, it's a snapshot or moment in time when, let's say, subscription revenue is majority, which it is in, in terms of revenue today. Um, what I'll say is this. It's not by design to have specific verticals lead or not. Like I think I've always said, we're pretty subsector agnostic or subvertical um, agnostic. Uh, what we care about is the underlying uh, uh, retention and customer lifetime value and overall uh, uh, profitability dynamics of any given model, right? So we're open to sectors, we're open to models in broader e-commerce, I mean. Whether it's subscription or B2B or, or, or even consumer marketplace, I mean, there are some really sticky consumer marketplaces out, but they're niche. And that's the key, right? They've got to be tight and sticky, and you've got to really own that, that niche, right? So, and, and that's where this becomes interesting because niche on its own is small, but many niches leading the way under a portfolio is, is, is quite massive, right? Billions of dollars out there. Can you share the the two or three kind of checklists for you know a company that does ABC that that's what we want? You know, typically it starts with um, 
some basic metrics. So when people say, well, what are you looking for? I'll say, look, industry agnostic, broadly speaking, one to 10 million in EBITDA. We initially started saying one to five. We've been averaging threes and fours with Valbox and Wholesale Pet lately on the EBITDA side. We're looking at deals all the way up to 10 million now in EBITDA per transaction. Um, I think those are less likely, quite frankly. I think you know it doesn't mean we can do four of those in a year, but I think we can do one in addition to other smaller ones. Um, and then revenue, which is kind of next next stop, you know, kind of yeah, like it happens to be that when you're one to ten million in EBITDA, it happens to be that you're probably like five to fifty or to seventy five million in revenue, and I think that's sort of the revenue piece. Then thirdly, we look at organic growth, and we say, look, with organic, meaning growth without any acquisitions. You know, inherently, we want to see something that's positive, right? If it's broken or if it's declining, we are not a restructuring firm. You know, I've done quite a bit of restructuring in my prior uh, uh, business, and it is not easy work, especially in e-commerce. Um, you're already held hostage in some ways by Amazon, Google, Facebook, all of these big giants. You don't need more restructuring than dealing with those potential risks that may arise. Um, and and so for us, you know, wanting it, wanting to jump into something already growing and working doesn't have to be crazy growth, by the way, uh, but but it has to be reasonable, you know, positive growth, you know, ten to twenty percent minimum is is often how we we view it. Um, and then beyond that, just the market dynamics of that particular niche: are there some good tuck-in opportunities? Does it tie in well with our audience? Could there be some cross-selling? Could there be some synergy? So that those are sort of some of the basic ways we look at what we're looking to buy. And how much autonomy do these companies have? So you you make an acquisition, wholesale pet. I'd assume a lot of the operations, as you said, you're not in the business of restructuring. But then when it comes to uh, you know when the companies uh, are profitable, do all the does all the cash roll up to HQ? How do you decide what you know new capital expenditures, reinvesting in the businesses? Who, who's that up to? Yeah, so we try to work on a pretty decentralized basis. I mean, we I know it sounds cliche, but we are very friendly. Towards founders and, and, and management, um, we partner with them. I don't think we've done any acquisitions where we said we know it all. We don't need you. We really encourage them to stick around for a multi-year earnout. Most of them have. The earnout timeframe that that they stick with Emerge has been increasing, not decreasing. You know, and uh, and you know that's a testament to the fact that we do actually let them run their show. I always tell portfolio companies, even before any deal is struck. The easiest thing in the world for me and the, and, and my, my wish list in a nutshell is for you guys to deliver on the plan, the conservative plan you said you would, right? That, that's my only ask. If you guys do that, you're setting your own plan. Like, I don't want to be involved. Like, I got other things to do. I got podcasts to be on. I got investors to answer to, right? I don't want to be jumping in and figuring things out with them. And so a lot of times I think they see that, like they truly live that, but where the benefit is, it doesn't mean there's no synergy, by the way. It means you focus on what you do best. If you're doing meat subscription or uh, uh, golf uh, uh, products, focus on honing that experience, focus on striking those partnerships, focus on keeping your talent motivated, incentivized, right? And one-upping the competition and so forth. We shall help you, you know, whether that's, uh, saving you some money on the back end in different ways that we do with with consolidating some systems, our data analytics company wide, our marketing learnings that we can pass along to you, uh, our M and A team for potential tuck in opportunities. If you want to buy a competitor, we'll tell you all about how M and A is done the right way. Um, raising capital for everyone, right? Like debt to continue to grow the business uh, accretively and with minimal dilution. So there's a lot of ways we'll help you, and we prefer you figure it out and grow your company. And that's the whole point of this earnout. Take two years, three years, even four years to grow this business from 20, 30 million to 100 million. Use our support. By all means, reach out to us, collaborate with other founders, do all of these things. They come for free. We're here for you. I tell them, we work for you. Tap into us. But if you're not on plan, then we got to get our hands dirty with you. We're still on the same team, but you can expect we'll be involved or more involved and support what we what we think is you know sort of the best choices to make. Yeah, you're you're doing so. You mentioned this. You're doing Shopify. I guess mostly most of the companies you're buying are on Shopify. I guess that makes it easier, anyhow. 
Um, what do you think of the Thrasios of the world, the FBA businesses? I'd imagine you probably don't have a great view of them, but for the listeners, these are companies that are built on the Amazon ecosystem. Thrasios may be one of the best known acquirers. What, what's your take on that model? Yeah, no, I actually follow it quite a bit. And, um, you know, I, 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 I've been giving this example uh, a lot, but, you know, so Thrasio is, is really, as you said, the market leader in Amazon uh, FBA uh, uh, roll-ups or consolidations, right? Um, uh, they call them the Amazon aggregators. That's the big, uh, big theme in e-commerce. And the reason it makes so much sense to their credit is that Amazon stores all run on Amazon. So Amazon's doing all the heavy lifting for you. They're doing the warehousing. They already have the technology and the site. Right, so you're kind of buying these stores. At the end of the day, you're buying traffic rankings on Amazon, and and the, you know a brand sometimes. Which again, you could argue there aren't many strong brands on Amazon. It's a lot more generic, and it's more about tactical moves and SEO and so forth. So Thrasio has built this, um, and others, of course. It's a it's a, it's a it's a very competitive space, and it's raised. I think last I checked, twelve billion dollars have gone into Amazon rollups. But there are something like 35,000 Amazon stores with a million plus in EBITDA. So it makes it very ripe for a factory style execution play where you're buying all these little stores. A lot of them are two people, one person, three people, 500K EBITDA, million EBITDA, like really on the smaller end. And you're putting them under also a shared ecosystem, much like Emerge. Um, And then you're improving their sourcing, you're improving their branding and packaging. Um, and so you got to build that factory support network that 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 groups like Thrasio have. So I have, you know, I think Thrasio and others will end up doing quite well. The big boys in the space that are really well funded and really well organized. Uh, I do worry about the risk of being overly reliant on an Amazon, right? So do you remember like Zynga and what happened with Facebook back in the day? You you hear a lot of horror stories with Yelp and. A trip advisor on Google when they were very reliant on search. So you have a company like Amazon that's deciding how your products rank, whether they're competing with you, how they're doing, you know, all of that stuff in conjunction with their world domination plans. To me, it sounds like quite risky. Emerge has always chosen the path of let's buy fewer, bigger independent brands and companies that share. Uh, or sorry, rather run their own ecosystem, have authentic direct relationships, i.e. emails, app downloads. So they really have a brand and a following that's way beyond anything you could do on Amazon. That's what we've been buying. But I don't think one or the other is right or wrong. I think they're very different approaches when it comes down to the nitty gritty. But the big picture is the same. We're both buying e-commerce companies because bigger is better. Scale matters in e-commerce. And I think we're getting to it from different lenses. Yeah, I think you're being very charitable. I think I'd be terrified if I was uh, running an FBA business uh, or if I was buying these FBA businesses. And I'll I'll say, maybe you're thinking it, I'll, I'll say it, but the big risk in having... So FBA fulfilled by Amazon, basically you are letting Amazon run every piece of your business except for the financial risk of you know holding inventory. I mean, you're putting out your money to get inventory, do all the work so that Amazon can make the sale and keep yep. however many points, you know, 25 or 30% of the sale. The risk is that Amazon can switch, you know, one line of code and and you know, you're at the bottom of the list now where Amazon can rip you off on Amazon Basics. And so you buy a company that's got 700,000 EBITDA Listen, you know, the six months later, it's got fifty thousand in EBITDA, and you, you're not going to have that with your model. So that's where the risk, and people know this. I'm not, I'm not sharing yeah. news here, but that's the risk that I think is a little hard to overcome. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with anything you're saying. I think sometimes bigger, well-backed companies happen to have an edge with these sorts of things. I mean, in the end. They're building relationships with Amazon. They're making it a more organized. They're still really small relative to the four or 500 billion a year. You know, these guys may be driving, I think, a billion or a couple of billion. Uh, so it's still really small in the largest scheme of things. And, but I would say this what excites me the most is that e commerce as an industry is now $4 trillion globally. And by the time we look up, you're talking six, seven billion in three, four years. Um, and we're still in the t- 10 to 15% of total retail coming from e-commerce. And so for me, as I told the team, we recently eclipsed the sort of the 100 million mark in gross sales uh, on, on the, through the Emerge portfolio. 
I said, look, that's awesome, but that's really just a drop in the bucket. We're only 10% of the way to a billion. A billion is 0.025% of 4 trillion. <laughs> and 4 trillion is going to 7 trillion by the time we look up. So, so I think that's really exciting is that there's many ways to slice how you can grow an e-commerce company. But I personally think the days of growth at all costs, the big marketplaces that raised billions and got away with it, and then happened to be lucky enough to graduate to the big leagues, you know, the Wayfairs, the Zulilis, the Etsys. I think that model, especially in this crazy microclimate, I think you're going to find it less and less focused. I think the focus is going to shift to profitable, cash-flowing uh, uh, e-commerce and technology companies over time. That's the way to go. I want to ask you about being a public company because you went public, I think, and I don't know when it was from inception, you know, when you sort of incorporated on day one to when you went public, but it felt like it was a quick run from private to public. What was that process like? And, and so I guess two questions. A, why did you choose to go public? And then B, what's it like running a public company? Yeah, totally. So um, we chose to go public in part because of what was happening uh, in the world, uh, in the macro climate that we felt uh, matched up well with our goals and, and needs. Uh, so when the pandemic hit March 2020, um, there was a tale of two sides, really. Uh, one was the stay at home, the e-commerce explosion, the hype and excitement around e-commerce. And frankly, we were seeing some of that with things like groceries, essentials, you know, masks. You know, we were one of the early uh, 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 businesses that sold masks online and stuff like that. So we really saw explosiveness on that side. On the flip side, we had businesses like experiences, travel, you know, golf. Even if everyone uh, was trying golf out during the pandemic, people forget golf courses were actually shut down for a couple of months at the beginning. Um, and then they got very busy, right? And, and they didn't need as many discounts on platforms like Underpar, one of our brands. So when we saw this, it was like, okay, well, e-commerce as a trend made it to mainstream finally. You'd think it would have happened sooner, but like really sort of peak e-commerce is coming and is here to stay and is here to grow. That happened, you know, right when that that storm hit us with the pandemic globally. And at the same time, we were looking to raise capital for our coming acquisitions. So we saw a demand. We did a virtual roadshow. Again, we were one of the first companies in Canada to, to do an entirely virtual roadshow with no travel. It was such a big story, no, no stakes, no closing dinners, none of that. Uh, and we did that in, in sort of May to, uh, to August of, of 2020. Uh, we raised 9 million and we saw the optionality was there to go public, get public currency, i.e. stock, right? Liquid stock that we could leverage to close not only our next acquisition, which ultimately ended up being true local, uh, but more acquisitions. And because we were averaging sort of an acquisition a year and you know, last year, for example, we did three acquisitions, four brands. Uh, we grew the business since going public. We grew the business from in, in a year, basically. Uh, we, we went public December 14, 2020. Uh, we grew the top line from 30 million to 120 million. So 4X in one year plus of being public. But most importantly, profitability-wise, we grew from just under a million, almost 900,000 in, in EBITDA the year we went public to about 7 million pro forma EBITDA, if you include all of our acquisitions and look at us on a collective basis. So you're talking about tremendous leverage and scale uh, and speed that you just wouldn't have been able to do privately, let alone in a pandemic when, when doors were shut, literally. So was that decision to go public actually uh, in large part made in 2020 during the pandemic? If I had to talk to you in 2019, it wasn't part of the, of the game plan? I think for us, the DNA of our company and the way we were set up um, was a function of uh, some public folks, some public banking and support folks that we always said, hey, we're building this to go public one day, but it wasn't a rush to go public. Timing had to be right. Um, and as I said, with a perfect storm, um, we were able to move, move fast in 2020 and make it happen. But no, it was kind of on our agenda. So something I thought in Canada you know, going public made sense. The, the, the roll-up story is really well understood. You have companies like Well Health and Dyn Durham, and of course, the godfather of con consolidation with Constellation Software. Um, so, so it was really well understood. And, and, you know, we wanted to be public. It's just 2020 made sense as a year to, to go out and do it. Um, and then just in terms of my experience being a public company CEO and what we've found, like anything in life, man, like lots of, lots of pros, lots of cons, right? Um, 
the balance of it is I'm I'm really glad we did go public at the time that we did because it opened up all these doors. We're a whole new level. Funding is available. Talent, all of these things are way more exciting. But man, man, is it a lot more time spent, a lot more cost. Uh, that that you, you got to do things right. Like you, you, you know, every company you buy, you know, and I think these are some of them. Some of them are good habits, like audits and uh, you know, the legal has you have to up your game on the legal side, on the tax side, on the insurance side. You know, you got more cost to deal. You have exchange fees. You have delays because of external parties. So th- there's a lot of that, right? And there's a lot of investor interfacing and spending time. And listen, I don't mind it. I have no problem running my mouth, as you know. But <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, it's just a try as much as I can to not lose track of the day-to-day of the business. You know, the, ba- the a lot of the big decisions that are rushed or that I'm not in the room for don't end up being the right decisions. It's the same thing for everyone else. It's like there are certain things that I just have an eye towards and I just really need to keep my discipline with finding time to be in that room when those big decisions are being made in the company. What what surprised you the most, not necessarily good or bad, but what's just been the most surprising about running a public company? Anything that happened that you just go, wait, I got to do this now or something like that? Yeah, if if, if I'm honest, probably how short-sighted people are, right? Because it kind of corners you to be a bit more short-sighted than you think you need to be. Like in your heart, you know that you're building something. You see uh, you know, what, what moves are happening day to day that are not available to the outside world, right? Um, but there's such a focused, you know, the obsession. It's, it's well-documented, you know, share price. And it's important, right? Like at the same time, you want to make your shareholders proud. We want to do it over the very long term, right? So we can do a lot of short-sighted things to drive up share price just now, like right? But will it last? And is it the right use of time versus comparing and contrasting with building long-term? And I'm not saying ignore shareholders and put your head down, because that's not, that's not cool either. They, they put their vote of confidence in you. They're putting their funds with you. But it's one of those things where you're like, damn, I wish, and again, maybe it's because I'm very cautious with how we spend. Like I should probably have two or three people around me handling all of this for investors and this and that. Kind of do a lot of that myself because I keep it, I stay true to my shareholders. I want to be in front of them. I want to be able to document and explain to them how we view the world in a very transparent way. But that's very time consuming when you have three, four thousand shareholders. Yeah, share and share price. You know, in in the in the short term, it's a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. So the, the share price will. We'll get to where it needs to be, but man, if you watch it day to day, quarter to quarter, it can be it can be draining. And you're saying to yourself, yeah. wait, you know, they're not giving me credit for this and this and this, you know. But but it can yeah. be you got to manage it. And and I'll tell you a secret: having been in it and having viewed myself and still view myself as a very long term guy. I mean, I don't. I've been around doing this stuff for twelve years. I've been CEO for twelve years. I I don't leave anything. I don't leave anyone hanging. But I'll tell you something: everyone who says, "Oh, we don't pay attention to share price," and we don't look at it or I kind of don't know where it is today. I didn't check for the last you know week. It's not true. It can't be true. Like it's unfortunate, but it's there, right? Like <laughs> it's this thing when the market, when the market is on, you're on, like you need to know what's going on. Have you missed anything? Is someone screwing, <laughs> screwing up somewhere? Um, so it's, it's just this visible thing. I can't, you know what? I'll tell you, it'll be funny and weird. Uh, if, if, one day I'm running a private company again, it'll be weird not to see this happening. It's like going to a club with no music. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because you see these companies that are private uh, take, you know, a unicorn or a decacorn. There's so many decacorns these days. And it's like, yeah, you know, I just got options in this company. Uh, You know, they're worth uh, $15 billion. Yeah, that was six months ago. And you take a public company over six months, it was worth 15 billion, then it was worth 2 billion, then it was worth 6 billion. So it's not like the share price is static. The only difference is that in the public markets, it's transparent. Whereas in the private markets, it's just, you know, it changes maybe once or twice a year and that's it. You you bet. You bet. But I'll tell you something. We're very fortunate with this. Our early employees, and not just our early ones, but really the team from the early days of 2016 all the way to the Go Public 2020, the vast majority of them, we're deeply in the money from an options perspective. And I know a lot of our hard workers, a lot of our early day um, team members 
you know, made out well. This options theory, which a lot of times screws up with startups. You hear all sorts of horror stories. They made out well. And you know what? They deserved it. And so when we went public and over time, you know, they've, they've been able to reap those rewards of working so hard during the early dark years of any startup. But it's been a great rewarding experience for myself and for the core management team to see some of those early employees, whether junior, mid-level or otherwise, because we have options across the board uh, uh, set up, that they were in the money and that many of them were five, six, seven X where their original options were, which is fantastic to see. That's great. I have one more question about Emerge uh, before we wrap up here. So um, the story of how you guys acquired Wagjag, I think is an interesting story for a few reasons, but can you just tell us briefly kind of what is Wagjag and why was that acquisition special? I love it. And, and I don't get asked enough about this. I don't even remember the last time anyone did ask uh, about Wagjack because it was kind of our really sort of our, if you think of our eight brands today, it's kind of that first legacy brand um, that we've kept. And it's, it's actually a bit of a standout for a few reasons. Uh, number one, back to my original history. So good way to end up the, the podcast and close the loop. Wagjack is actually originally, again, a Groupon style uh, competitor. So it was originally a competitor of mine. Uh, it was owned by Torstar, the parent company of the Toronto Star and, and Metroland. And you know, this was at a time where before Torstar actually you know, restructured, sold their business, um, they had this little deal site and it, they, they created a lot of awareness around it, but it wasn't a big deal to them from a, from a P&L perspective. So you know, I was bothering uh, uh, the lead uh, at the digital division for, for years, you know, <laughs> just to say, hey, like, do you still want it? Do you, do you want to sell it? Homer? Like, Back in the day, it was Tomer originally, and then it was it was Chris Goodridge, who's now uh, I think uh, uh, president at Vertical Scope, um, uh, and there were a few others involved along the way uh, at, at Metroland and so forth. So we kept bothering to, bothering them till one day he called and said, "Listen, you still want this? Let's get it going. I have a time frame. Like I want to be aggressive. I want to get it over with." So we got very fortunate with that deal because we kind of. Because they were rushing out of it, we basically picked up this legacy business that they'd spent tens of millions of dollars on uh, at the time. And this is all public. Um, we picked that business up for like 500K. It was our first deal you know, from our existing brands today. It's really sort of that first uh, uh, deal. And with that 500K, we've, we've driven, I would say, north of 35 to $40 million in sales from Wagjack. Now, look, it is, a, it is still a relatively small piece of our overall pie today. Where I think it's become more intriguing for us and more, I think, powerful is beyond just the revenue and uh, the PL, it's kind of the insights we get out of it because it is a broad uh, marketplace. So it's not a niche, right? Notice all of our focus since then has been the, the king of golf, the king of meat subscription, the king of outdoor gear, pets. We've been really niche focused since then. But with Wagjack, it's kind of almost like a, a, a survey ground or an incubator as to where is consumerism going? When the pandemic hit, we noticed it was going towards grocery because we saw how people were shopping on Wagjack, grocery, right? And so that led us to say, well, who's, who's interesting in grocery and open that door to True Local? And that's why we bought True Local. Same thing with golf. We noticed on Wagjack that some of these golf deals, they're low refunds. People don't complain as much, you know, they're typically, you know, sort of very comfortable and not, not penny pinching as much and, and so forth. And so there was dynamics in golf that Wagjack showed us. It was worth us going into the golf niche. So we use it as a bit of a secret sauce in the background. It's amazing. It's, it's a compass. It's like a, it's like a, little, uh, yeah. a, little, a little, a little map that you have saying, hey, we should go here. We should go there. That's so cool. Yeah. And I love yeah, that yeah. it brought you back to your, to your group buying roots. It, it it brought us back to our roots, and uh, and you know we learn a lot from a lot of a lot of founders. And I'll close with this, John. Unless you have other other comments or questions, but like a lot of I, founders, I can go for another hour, man. I'm not going to, but yeah, yeah no, I, <laughs> lots of questions. I, I, I got shareholders to report to, my <laughs> man. I, I would have loved to, but I was going to say like entrepreneurs and founders are all too often um, embarrassed of whether it's missteps or issues in their journey or failures. And there's a lot of talk about you know, glor or glamorizing now, hey, failure is good. Listen, you don't want to fail. Let's be clear here. Like you're not trying to fail. But the, 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 the art of you know, failing and falling, as they say, and, and kind of coming back, I mean, that's exciting too. Like there's a lot to learn. You're doing what you love, or you should be, at least if you ask me. You're networking. 
uh, uh, you're figuring things out, you're documenting stuff. That's the journey, taking all of that and saying, listen, in life, you die when you die. But in business, you, you kind of die when you don't come back up. It's your choice to always come back. It's always your choice. You could fail. Your company could have an issue. You could be restructuring, get thrown out. Anything that happens, you're dead, game over. When you choose, it's game over. If you're not done, if you want to come back, if you want to prove yourself, if you want to go back and buy the company that you left, you could do that. And I'll tell you this last little tidbit. The team by restructuring, my old business that got restructured and sold and I kind of left it you know, miserable and unhappy with it. Lo and behold, and this is, an ex- this is a John Davis exclusive. I've never said this on any other podcast. I didn't plan to say it either. Lo and behold, the company that bought our assets and all of that, they defaulted on a loan a year or two later. Now, that went into an auction. And the company that bought that, that business, those assets, the original team buy assets, was a company called Bytopia, which was founded by Michel Romano, from, now from the CEO of Clearco. And when that company bought those assets, was right around the time we launched Emerge. And quietly, when we were private, the first company we bought was Bytopia, which owned the team by assets. So therefore, it all looped back. And I'm proud to say that's a wrap. I love that, man. That, that is such a story to go out on. What, what a full circle story. Uh, where can people find you? Where can we follow you? Where can we learn more about Gassan Halazan? You bet. So very active on LinkedIn. You know, proud to say, uh, I was looking, I was like, I just crossed 20,000 followers on LinkedIn. And I'm like, who would have thought that would have been my social media channel of choice? <laughs> but here we are. Um, so, so very active, uh, you know, really try to put out my content and my journey there. Same thing with Instagram, at InstaG with a J-E-E. Um, as those are really the two outlets. Twitter as well, at InstaG. Um, you know, really try to spend more time now talking the, the, the real talk, right? Sharing the real journey, my truth, our, our mistakes, our opinions, our struggles, uh, as much as I can as a public company CEO. But, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student of the space. And I'm a student of public companies, tech e-commerce companies. And really, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a proponent at the end of the day of all founders and encourage them to reach out uh, and, and, and hopefully uh, follow and, and, and be followed. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on today, man. This was awesome. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davids. We'll see you next time.